Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good afternoon from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom and I are in-house, and then once again, we have Dr. Bronson Strickland on the phone from Startville. So, Bronson, how are you today, man? I'm doing great. All is well. We had Bronson on, and we and he talked to us about chronic wasting disease, but he's a wealth of knowledge, Tom, and there's so many more things that we can talk about, so many things that I can selfishly learn from Bronson. He, See, he, that, that's why Jason wanted to have him on. That's why he was so intent about having you on, Bronson, was so that he could pick your brain for knowledge when it came to getting out. That's why he did his foot at the time. This is all interrelated. Well, so I'm going to live vicariously through Bronson for a little while because my, my deer hunting career is on the shelf right now with this bad wheel that I have. But anyway, we, we did want to get Bronson back on and, and talk, I guess, uh, it was CWD extremely important and he covered that thoroughly and how important it is for our state and not just the interested parties that are hunters but then too he he knows a lot of other things tom and, and so that's what we want to do today is get down into more of some brass tacks do's and don'ts surrounding the actual pursuit of the white-tailed deer but before we do bronson my question for you today you mentioned last time that archery was your thing. So have you gone the way of the saddle hunting yet? Ooh, good question. I have, uh, on numerous occasions, I have thought about it. And for whatever reason, I have just have not been convinced that it's going to be good for me. So I guess just, you know, for 20, 30 years of always having a climbing stand on my back or or ahead of time having a lock on or something like that. It, it's a habit for me now. Right. And so thinking about having to learn a new process and buy new gear, I think I'm just going to stick with what I have, and that's a climbing stand. So, Tom, are you familiar with the saddle? No. Okay. Maybe Bronson can explain it to you more clearly than I could. I have an explanation in my mind. <laughs> I'd prefer to hear Bronson's being, he's more, my, my would very much be a, a, dash a, a your novice, ego this afternoon. Yeah, a layman's description of it. So to, uh, describe a saddle to Tom Forrest Bronson. Tom, I, I think it's essentially, um, so if you're, you're in a climbing stand, you know, you've got this metal or whatever kind of uh, material contraption and you put around the tree and, you know, climb up and you are held within, you know, that, that stand. A saddle is a little bit different. It's it's a way of tethering you to the tree, and it almost, I guess, kind of appears to be like a saddle. It's something that goes around your waist and between your legs, and it's kind of like you're on a lineman's belt, but you um, you will use uh, climbing steps to ascend to, to get you up and, and then affix you know, your saddle and a little platform to, to stand on. But essentially, I think the, the, the biggest uh, advantage of it is that you have a lot more mobility regarding, especially for, for someone with a bow in their hand, you have a lot of mobility where you can work around the tree. You can lean out, lean to the right, lean to the left, use the tree, put the tree between you and the deer to kind of use it for cover. So it just kind of gives you some more, some more options that way. Hope that makes sense. Well, his mouth's open. I think he's processing all that. 
My description was going to be basically it, Bronson's is a lineman hanging on a pole. That's really what it looks like. Yeah. I've yeah, seen that. That's essentially it. Bronson, this time of year, the discussion is always on strategy and tactics. Tactics and strategy of chasing the white-tailed deer. And I know you've got a world of knowledge and experience. So give us some, I guess, some pointers, thinking about Tom and not downplaying Tom at all, but Tom's not a hunter. So educate Tom on the beginnings of what he needs to know for pursuing a trophy whitetail. Well, that that was a big distinguishing difference. Jason, when you closed it out there and said a trophy whitetail versus okay, well, well, deer hunting. Okay, well, it, it doesn't have to be. Tom's not going after okay. any trophies. Tom's not on the board yet, so. Well, no, no, he does, but he does. Ward is on yeah. the board in our house. That yeah, was, yeah. Tom, was spectacular Tom, 21 for him. Tom's son is the deer hunter in the Allen household. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Tom, it, it, it's basically going to be uh, a process for, for most people the more you put into it preparation wise uh, the more successful you're going to be and at, at its most elementary level and of, of course in real life it's more complicated than, than this but most elementary level it is positioning yourself in between cover and food and so a deer throughout the day is going to, well, it's going to bed about half of its day. And that's going to be broken up into different time periods and so forth. But essentially, you're trying to get yourself in between where the deer is bedded and where they want to go and eat. And a lot of people even make it more simple where they don't want to get in between where a deer beds and eats, and they just go sit on the food. And, and that's very productive. When we do informal surveys of what's the most common stand setup, and this is even outside of Mississippi, the single most common stand setup is going to be either a lock-on or a box blind on the edge of a food plot. And the reason for that is that it's pretty darn convenient, and you're probably going to see a lot of deer because you're on the food. Some drawbacks of that, though, over time is once you start harvesting deer off of that plot, deer are going to become wary of using that plot during daylight hours. And so now I've I got to transition from deer hunter to deer manager. You got to sit back and think, now, what is the purpose of me having this food plot? And for some people, the food plot is just a mechanism to see and hunt deer. For other people, the food plot is a mechanism for increasing diet quality of the deer herd to improve body weight, to improve antler size, etc. So if you're just going in and always harvesting deer on the plot and you start discouraging them from using the plot and you're interested in bigger antlers, bigger bodies, etc., you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot by doing that. Another thing is if you're more into to older bucks and trophy bucks, you know, a lot of those animals may not visit those food plots essentially until nighttime or dark. And so that's why we typically recommend the, the best way to be most effective in the grand scheme of things is not harvesting deer on the plot, but doing your homework and getting in between where some deer are bedded and then go into the plot and harvest them there. That way the deer don't have this affiliation with, 
every time I go to this green field, I hear this boom, you know, and I see people and my buddy died next to me. But very, very simplified, but that's kind of the game there. Figure out what they eat and try to get close to it or on a pathway to food and just set up and, and wait on them. That's one style of hunting. You know, another style of hunting that, that I'm not good at and I don't have the patience to is, uh, but I know some people that are very good at this, is they just go stalking through the woods. They're just very deliberate, very slow. Every minute take a step and they just let deer move around them. And when they have an opportunity to harvest uh, a deer, they take their shot. And a lot of those people are really successful. But but for starting out, I, I wouldn't recommend that. Probably going to be very low success rate. Yeah, you got to have some woodsmanship to you to to be successful doing that. Very many times helps to have some snow on the ground too. You were going to ask me if I had a question. I was going to say no. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you want to know? Best food source. Okay. You know, that's the one thing I hear about all the time. Everybody talks about, oh, persimmon trees, acorn trees, then food plots. Everybody does something different. So what's your best choice for a planted food plot? Well, if you know me, I'm not going to give you a, a simple answer because I don't think there's a simple answer. And it's really because deer dietary needs are going to change throughout the year. Deer have evolved for seasonal availability of certain foods that are going to match their physiology in terms of what they need. So, for example, a lot of people, when they begin hunting and, le- and learning about deer and their attraction to, to acorns or, or acorns, depending on where you're at and how you like to say that word, people think, for example, that mass, hard mass acorns, or high protein, because we hear that so much, you know, high protein this, high protein that. Actually, acorns are very, very low protein, but they're very high in carbohydrates. They're very high in energy as well as fat. Well, if you, if you think about this evolutionarily, is that acorns are available typically before there were food plots in agricultural fields when there's a scarcity of food. And so that is a very high energy fat building food source on the landscape for, for deer in fall and winter when a lot of those warm season herbaceous plants are no longer available. So throughout the fall and winter, deer are going to be attracted to both soft mass and hard mass. Examples would be persimmons, of course. They're attracted to persimmons and again, a very high energy source attracted to acorns, high energy source. And that's really what we think is the reason deer like corn so much. It's not for the protein, it's just they're craving energy that time of year. But they also crave protein and need protein for tissue building. And what we see is that is most all of the common food plot forage species, which for you guys is essentially the same as in a cover crop, suite of plants that's in a cover crop, cereal grains, Cereal grains, meaning oats, wheat, cereal rye, those are all palatable, all nutritious. The clovers, and there's many, many different kinds, but crimson, balanza, arrowleaf, red, white, on and on, they're all good. They're all good. You just need to figure out which one works best for you and grows best in your soil, but those are all good. Brassicas as well. 
you know, some people will say, my deer don't like brassicas, my deer love brassicas. And there can certainly be individual differences of deer, but I've never seen a case where there's been a multi-year planting of a brassica and deer never eat it. One thing that, that deer can do is they can shy away from something that's novel. So a lot of people will say, the first year I planted that brassica and the deer never touched it, I'm never planting it again. That, that very well may be true, but that was because it was, it was a novel forage. And then over time, deer will eat it a little bit and then eat it more. And then year three or year four, they'll wipe it out as soon as it comes out of the ground in some cases. So, Tom, there's there's just a lot of choices. There's no single, you know, magic bullet food plot species. There's But there's a whole bunch of really good food plot species. Bronson, you mentioned cover crops. One strategy on cover crops on agricultural fields are these multi-crop blends. And so I think I can semi-anticipate your answer to this, but what is the value of a three- or four-way mixture in a food plot, or is there a value there? There is. And, Jason, you, you can accomplish that two different ways. You can split your field into four plots or five plots or whatever and have four or five monocultures, or you can mix them all together. You know, to, to me... Uh, there, there's really no difference. The biggest take-home point there is that, number one, diversity. And it's similar with livestock and, and just like deer, is that there can be seasonally, there can be some certain forages that they prefer more, and then there's also individual deer differences. And so just the same way as humans, some people are very intolerant of salt and some people crave salty foods. And, you know, probably something going on uh, physiologically is their sodium balance. Some people need more sodium and therefore crave more sodium and want more salty foods. We kind of see the same thing, things with deer, they're individuals. The biggest deal also with the diversity is what we call staggering our crop or plot maturation over and beyond the deer season. So you guys think about when you, when you put something in the ground, one of those three, four, five way blends, immediately what you're going to get the best growth out of are your cereal grains. All the other forages are growing, but those cereal grains jump out of the ground, actively growing. Uh, That's when fiber content is least, Digestible content is greatest, food protein is greatest. And then as cold weather sets in, something like oats or wheat, the growth rate may slow down. Well, then we start seeing when you get towards end of winter and into spring, that's when those clovers really start to grow. You know, they grow from going from being ankle high to, you know, halfway between your ankle and your knee. All those clovers are growing. And that's when they're very, very palatable. And so, what we always recommend is having a mix or a combination of a cereal grain or two and a clover or two. And with the clovers, we want an early maturation clover and a later maturation clover. And when you do something like that, guys, you go from a single planting that occurs in, say, September, and you can still be providing deer nutrition, depending on the mix, all the way until. May, June, or July. And so you can't get 12 months out of, a, you know, one planting, but you can get pretty close. 
All right, Bronson, I'm going to set up a scenario for you. So Tom's got a good food plot going, and it's adequate size. It's got a lot of stuff going on in it, and he's maybe identified some traffic patterns. He thinks he's got him a pretty good setup going. When does he need to be there, and when does he most definitely not need to be there? On your your food plot scenario, First of all, I would, I would be very careful not to overhunt it. That, that's number one. The times I'm going to hunt it, I'm going to pay very close attention to the wind. And so even though, Tom, this is your day off and this is the day I wanted to go hunting, but the wind is out of the west and that west wind is going to blow your scent all out in that plot, it's the same as you killing deer on the plot and driving your ATV out there. You have pretty much, you've alerted the deer that, that you were there. So I, I, I wouldn't hunt it. But the, the greatest probability, I think, for success on a food plot is going to be you haven't hunted it very often. You wait until an afternoon to hunt it, and you make sure the wind is in your favor. The wind is in your face and not blowing out into the plot. And if, if you limit that to just, you know, a few trips a year to that plot, I think you can accomplish everything from a hunting perspective as well as a management perspective because so so few disturbance events, you know, deer disturbance events are occurring. It's probably not going to have a big impact on deer use, and that is what we want. We want a lot of deer use from the hunter observation side of it as well as from a deer nutrition side of it. We want deer to use that plot. All right, let's take it one step further. So say Tom listens to Bronson and he doesn't have his set up on the edge of the food plot. Maybe he's, you know, back off a ways, identified some some movement patterns and he thinks he's far enough off that he's not disturbing his food plots. What are some do's and don'ts for that situation? I guess the way I would probably think about that is and this is what is a little bit different when you hunt in the southeast versus something like the Midwest. When you get in, quote, the woods and hunt, you're never going to be really certain which way the deer are coming from unless you have really good trail camera network where you can really figure out their patterns. If they're on this trail, they're going to be coming one way. And what I mean by that is we, we want to minimize disturbance. So we don't want to scare deer for our current hunt and for future hunts. And, and the best way to do that is when you know where deer are bedded and, and you know where they're probably going to go to for food. A lot of places in the Midwest, for example, it's really easy to figure that out. And heck, even in, in y'all's region, the Delta, it, it can be really easy if you have a block of timber and then 200 yards away is a big field or food plot. And in between that block of timber and that food plot is a little creek or riparian area where you have trees, where you have shrubby cover. You, you can pretty much bet that if the deer are going to move into that plot, they're going to follow that corridor that offers them some cover to get there. But when you're kind of deeper in the woods, that can be more difficult to figure out where exactly they're coming from. So, Tom, what, what I would recommend is you can always go in and just hunt in the woods and enjoy the morning or the afternoon and see what you see. But the more strategic you are going to be about, the more effective you're going to be, 
is I would say you really need to put up some trail cameras and figure out the most common trails those deer are using. And once you know that, that you're hunting a specific trail, you're now using still that same advice of you got to make sure the wind is in your face. So don't let the wind be blowing in the direction of where you're hoping to see deer. Bronson, as, as a, as a new hunter, I keep hearing from people that the moon matters. Do lunar stages have anything to do with deer hunting success? The only reason, as best we can tell right now, that the moon would influence deer hunter success is that if more people believed that it did and they hunted on a day with that particular moon condition, either a, a, a new moon or a full moon. So that is just because, because I only hunt on the days that have a full moon the night before, then there are more people out there on that day and they may be harvested more deer, if that makes sense. But in terms of from, from the deer's side of it, does the moon at all, any relationship with the deer movement, is there any relationship with it influencing the timing of the rut? There is, at this point in time, absolutely no evidence for that whatsoever. And that usually gets people fired up because that's something that a lot of people have heard. Hey, there's a, there's a full moon tonight or there's a new moon tonight. Or the, and it's really fascinating. Or the moon's underfoot this yeah. afternoon. Or the, yes. Exactly. The moon's rising, blah, 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 blah. But here's the way I try to break that down biologically, guys, or scientifically. Tom, does your hunger at all, is your hunger affected by the placement of the moon or whether it was a full moon the night before or not? Does that keep you from being hungry the next day? No. It doesn't influence me either. And that's... Deer have to move every single day. And so we say that theoretically, you know, they have to move every day. They've got to have two or three feeding bouts every single day or four or five feeding bouts every single day. And then when we put GPS collars on these deer where we can monitor, are they moving or not? We see precisely that every single day these deer are moving and they're not just moving at night either. They're always, and that's the key being a new hunter, Tom, is if you're going to increase your odds of seeing deer, forget about the moon and and keep this in mind. Deer are going to move every day. And most often they move around sun up. So let's forget the moon and talk about the sun. They move most at sun up and sun down. So for you as a hunter, you're going to see the greatest movement activity the hour or two after sunup and an hour or two before sunset. There's going to be some movement during the day, but it's never as much as you see at sunup and sundown. When we look at moon cycles and moon phases and we plot that on top of daily deer movement rate or buck movement rate, we see absolutely no relationship at all. Well, then some people will say, yeah, but the moon, 
uh, you know, the whatever, the third moon in November, first moon in December, whatever. They're going to turn around and say, well, that's going to be stimulating the rut. And that essentially means that the moon is going to be causing adult does, adult females to come into estrus. And again, we see absolutely no, no evidence for that. Year after year after year, biologists and hunters, when you collect does, and this is how we can emphasize this so confidently, is that when year after year, you can harvest adult does, either at the end of deer season or NDWFMP and what we, they call spring herd health checks. And inside of those pregnant does are fetuses. And you can pull those fetuses out, and we have a very accurate equation based on the length, the size, or the length of that fetus. You can backdate it to know when that doe conceived, when she was bred. And year after year after year on a site, even though it may differ from site to site, but on a site, there's hardly any variation. Maybe a day or two is all the swing we will ever get. And so the moon is not influencing that whatsoever. And the trigger, it is an environmental trigger, but it's a trigger that we call photo period. And so photo period for animals, you know, it's the ratio of daylight hours to nighttime hours, the ratio of light to day, night to day. And they have a clock through their optic nerve and the physiology gets complicated, but basically they reach a, a tipping point at, at some photo period time. It stimulates this cascading effect from the optic nerve, the pituitary gland, et cetera, to start releasing hormones. And then those hormones will cause the female to come into heat. But guys, think about this scientifically. I'm giving you more time. I'm giving you more than you asked for here. But think about this scientifically. Mother Nature did not optimize when does come into heat based on when's a good time to have the rut. Does come into heat to optimize when the fawn will hit the ground, what is, the, what is the single best time period, you know, a week or two or three or a month, when does that fawn need to hit the ground so it has the greatest chance of survival? So it's, it's an evolutionary process. The fawns that hit the ground at the optimal time, more of them live. When a female comes into estrus, that is genetically controlled but stimulated by photoperiod. So that, that doe fawn that grows into an adult doe, she now carries that genetic window of when to come into estrus because she lived. She inherited her mother's genes for that. And then photoperiod stimulates that hormonal response to put her into estrus at that time. And so that's why we see generation after generation of deer, that rut timing is passed on from generation to generation. So my apologies, I, I, I got behind the pulpit there a little bit, but <laughs> all that to say, the rut is not influenced by the moon. The rut timing is influenced by the optimal time for the fawn to hit the ground to maximize its survival. I know we're going long, but I, 
related to this, there was another question that I thought of. If I'm in one county and then two counties over, it seems like the rut happens maybe a month apart. One, yeah. is, that, is that common? And then two, why? With no, uh, with no obvious yeah. difference in, you know, environment. Right. That's, a, that's an excellent question. And your observation is correct. Your observation is correct. That is something that happens in the South, but rarely happens up North. If, if you think about your, your friends or colleagues that hunt, you know, Iowa, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, you know, it's typically always middle of November, end of November. And, and the reason for that is up north, they have a very defined window of when that fawn can hit the ground. That fawn needs to hit the ground in May, essentially. If they hit the ground too early, it's still too cold. There's still snow on the ground. Spring green up hadn't occurred, et cetera. The fawn's chances of survival are very low. If they hit the ground too late in the middle of the summer, they're not going to be able to accumulate enough body mass to make it through the winter. So they have a very narrow window up north of when fawns hit the ground. In the south, we don't have that. In other words, there's a, there's a lot of latitude from, say, East Texas to North Carolina when fawns can hit the ground. And, they, you know, there may be an optimal time, but again, there's a lot of flexibility or wiggle room in there. What we find, Jason, in those places where two counties over, sometimes one county over, where there's three weeks or a month or so difference, we typically can link that back to genetic differences based on restocking back in the 60s and 70s. And so for, for those that may not know, when deer were essentially extirpated from Mississippi and a lot of the Southeast, the, the game and fish, MBWF and P now, they brought in deer from places like Mexico, Texas, Wisconsin, Ohio, Kentucky, North Carolina, et cetera. And so in all these places, you kind of have a, you know, a, a melting pot of these different genotypes. And that's what we typically link it back to is DNA. It's this particular group of deer lived, they were the survivors, and they carry with them kind of the genetic history from where they evolved, whatever state they evolved in, of when their rut was. And because we have a milder environment in the South, we, we don't have those environmental bookends like you'll see up North. So if, if a, a fawn hits the ground in June in one county and it hits the ground in July or August in another county in That's the cool. South, in Mississippi, yeah. it's, it's fine. Yeah. So I wish you could see Tom's face. He, he <laughs> I think he's taking, uh, taking it all in. I'm fascinated. I mean, you, uh, that, that's like basic biology and I, evolution and everything there wrapped up into one for well, me. Well, so what I was going to say, and that, that was my point, I think you would really enjoy it. I mean, just knowing your personality and the way you like to, you know, really get into the, the subtleties of things, I think it would be up your alley. And and you got Ward. Ward wants to do it, so. Yeah, I know. That's true. Y'all can y'all can look for arrowheads and then go shoot a deer. Arrowheads and bones on the gravel bars and everything else. Oh yeah, it's it's a rambling, raucous good time in our house. All right, we gotta let Bronson go. So Bronson, thank you. Hey, Tom, d- d- Tom, one thing though, d- don't neg- don't neglect the venison, man. <laughs> I mean, d- venison, and I, you gotta learn how to cook it. 
so many people are down on oh deer meat. I don't like deer meat. I, I tell you what, I I rarely find a person that if it's cooked the right way, seasoned the right way, etc. I've turned many many heads. I, I I've had people that, that say they absolutely despise deer meat. I can I can smell it. it. It tastes so bad. I can smell it if someone's eating it in the room, and I'll say, "Really? Well, you just enjoyed it." And then, oh my God, you're telling me I ate Vincent. So, th- don't neglect the opportunity as well for free ranging protein venison. We greatly appreciate you taking the time out of your day to sit and discuss these things with us. I think this is important. It'll definitely be good podcast episodes for sure. Well happy to at any time i appreciate the time and thanks for the platform and hopefully it was some good information help some people tell folks where they can find you and, and all the work that you do a- absolutely uh so we're on all the, the social media platforms facebook instagram twitter uh we, we launched our youtube channel a couple years ago but we've really got into adding content so if you go to msu deer lab on all those platforms and on youtube you'll, you'll find our content we have a, we are really proud of our website as well. A lot of information there, msudeerlab.com. And then also our podcast. If you want to hear a couple nerds like me and Steve Maris uh, talk about this kind of stuff uh, for hours on end, go to our podcast, Deer University. And anytime we have something new coming out, some new research that's coming out or some new videos or publications, things like that, we always put it on those on those platforms and talk about it on our podcast. So if you want to keep up with what's going on, just check those out. Awesome. Thanks, Bronson. We really appreciate it, man. Absolutely. Happy to, guys. Anytime. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.